You are listening or watching Real Conversations with Jacob Young. Real Conversations, of course, is sponsored by Boys Town. Saving children, healing families for over 100 years. Please go to boystown.org. See how you can help support the girls and boys of Boys Town. And RCJY is also sponsored by Next Generation Storytellers, paving the way for young filmmakers, one movie at a time. Now, my guest this week has been involved in almost every facet of filmmaking. She's been a writer, director, producer, cinematographer, or a marketing executive for over 150 television projects and new media projects. She's also the co-founder and former director of the Sundance Film Festival. Just a little festival. And also a former studio executive of MGM UA and United Artist. She recently began a non-profit called High School Media Collective with the founding sponsor Black Magic Design and fiscal sponsor Catalyst. My guest this week is the extraordinarily talented and creative Serena Catania. You know what time it is. It's time to keep it real with Real Conversations with Jacob Young. Welcome. for all that yeah of course <laughs> welcome to the show and thank you it's nice to see you again it's uh it's been an interesting few weeks since i met you in trent yeah it, it certainly has and a lot has developed yeah, yeah yeah i mean you know in addition to everything else that you're doing you're a showrunner and host of owc radio so i know that you're very very busy and and i thank you for taking the time today to speak to everybody on the podcast Oh, this is great. We'll have fun. So let me jump right in. You've had an incredible career. How did it all start for you? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, I think when I was three or four years old, I got a camera for Christmas, a little little camera. And I remember running around taking picture with it, taking pictures with it, and you couldn't get it out of my hands. And that started the whole thing. I think I was always just really creative. And that was part of my outlet. So for years, I used photography as a way of creating my own magical world. And it just took off from there. That's awesome. <laughs> now, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's been plenty of hurdles. Uh, you know, when, yeah. when, when I think about women in the industry, when it was from so many years, a man's world. And you started pretty darn early what was that like when you first started? How has it changed? And do you think it's getting better? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Do you have about five hours? <laughs> I certainly do. No, you got to keep it quick. We're, we're going to keep it at an hour. <laughs> keep it quick. I, I was really lucky. I, I, I've always been feisty. I've always been tough-willed. I've always known what I wanted to do. And I was raised in a military family. So I had very strict parents who didn't really want me to do the creative stuff. They they thought I needed, my mother thought I needed to get married and make babies. Um, and I just never, I always wanted to do something in the creative realm. And I just never let anybody tell me no. I guess my whole life I was just really stubborn. And now I have a granddaughter who did the Shirley Temple number on me a couple of years ago. And she was knee high and she walked up to me and she put her hands on her hips and she went, don't you say no to me, pursed her lips. And I thought, okay, she's got my jeans. So I guess it, it, was, it wasn't so much tough as it was challenging. And I had to ignore all the no's 
and I had to get used to being interrupted all the time. Or we would be, for example, in the boardroom at United Artists, and I'd be sitting to the left of the chairman, and and he'd start on his right, and we'd go all the way around the room, and everybody would be saying yes, and I would just go, I'd look around the room, and i go, no, <laughs> you guys aren't telling the truth. And so I guess it was a matter of um, being honest with people, being um, assertive, being good at what you do, working twice as hard as everybody else, and just ignoring all that other noise that was ar- that was around me. Yeah, there were there were times when it was really difficult, and and yeah, I don't really like dwelling on that too much. You know, somebody said the other day, you can't relive the past, so all you can do is learn for it and and move on. And I, I think it has gotten a little bit easier, but it hasn't. it's not where it really needs to be. Especially now that I'm an older woman, I get a different kind of discrimination. I get people who assume that, that uh, I'm not smart. Or you're or, out of touch. or Yeah, that I haven't kept up with technology. All of those things that, that I find, I find them humorous now because I don't, I don't really push against it really hard. And I just let them discover that I have a brain. My both of my girls are really smart and they went through their versions of it. I mean, one of my daughters is has a PhD in neuroscience and she teaches she's a professor at UC Davis in the medical school and she's had her own version of that. And my other daughter is a partner in a law firm. She's had her own version of that. Um, we like the movie Legally Blonde <laughs> because it's kind of the way it has been for us, you know. If you're young and and you're attractive, and you're it, you're assumed not to be smart. Now I know in France it's different. I was raised in France. That's the other thing, France and Germany. And over there, you can be really pretty and you can be really smart at the same time. Seems like it's a little bit different in the United States. Yeah, if, if you can generalize a little bit. So I don't know. The question is, was it hard? I think anybody that works in our business has it difficult for various reasons. I'm sure you had it difficult in some ways because oh no it was perfect all the way through <laughs> yeah no, no sweat no sweat i mean being as handsome as you are people oh. probably don't assume that you've also got this amazing brain in there right so i think it happens both to men and women sure and the, the one thing for me i think that always made it easier is that i love working with other women and i love working with men I just appreciate both and they're different. I think they're different. I think they communicate differently, but if you respect them and you're honest with them, it works out. I can give you an example if you want. Please do. An example. I was at NAB a few years ago and I'm with my assistant who's this wonderful woman, Angela. She was with me at NAB and I have two young crew members behind me, both in their twenties, um, shooting for us and, we're walking through the, the convention and we go past this booth and the guy running, demonstrating in the booth, totally ignores me and Angela, goes behind us and starts engaging with the two young men behind me and talking tech with them. And I looked at Angela and I looked over at him and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to say something. So we turned around, we walked back and I said, do you have any idea what you just did? He goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, you totally ignored us 
and you went to the two young people behind us who are just barely getting started, just interning and learning, and you ignore you ignored the two older women. And he goes, I didn't even think about that. I said, I just wanted to let you know to think about it in the future. And so I invited him over to the Black Magic booth <laughs> where I was shooting for Black Magic that year, right? So we had yeah. a whole crew and we were behind the scenes of Black Magic. And he was so apologetic and he told me, that he appreciated me saying that to him because he didn't realize that that's something that he was doing instinctively. So, well, you may have changed his life from there on out. He, he said he wasn't going to think about it the same way. Um, You can't always do that. Obviously, if you're in a situation where you're in a corporate room um, and it, it, it does, it gets annoying, but, what can you do? You yeah. know, you just have to prove yourself to people. A hundred percent. It's funny you brought up uh, Legally Blonde, and I'm going to talk about myself for a second. Do it. Because it's kind of <laughs> funny. Um, I had originally auditioned for the lead actor in it, but they were looking for like more of like a JFK Jr. type. Um, but I had auditioned for uh, the casting director so many times over the years. Mary Vernu, I believe it is. And she was like, well, maybe there's something we can figure out. And I hadn't gotten the whole script at that point. Um, But lo and behold, there's a scene where Reese Witherspoon is watching a soap opera in bed and she throws the bonbons at the TV and (laughs) and she goes, liar! And that was me on the screen. (laughs) And it became a meme, which I didn't realize until about a year ago. I was like, what? What is going on? Oh, I want to see that. Liar, (laughs) you liar. (laughs) No, we love that movie, um, and I think a lot of women can identify with that. Have you seen the new Barbie movie? I have. I did see I the. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I went in there with you know no preconceived notions about feeling one way or the other because I was like, well, it's about Barbie, so uh, I'm just gonna just enjoy the ride. Um, I went with my wife, her aunts, and her mom, and then my daughters as well, and my son. He went. They were big Barbie collectors their whole lives, including my, my wife, too, who's got tons of Barbies, all in the boxes. But her aunts were, like, so devastated that the movie was not something that they were expecting. And they were very vocal about it. And I said, well, what do you expect? It's about, it's about Barbie. It's, a, it's about a plastic world. But, you know, the message, obviously, at the end was, it was the through line about empowering yourself. And, and funny enough, a year, no, two years ago, I was in Los Angeles, or maybe it was a little more than that. My friend who's a big toy collector introduced me to the woman who created Barbie. We oh, went, wow. We had, we had sushi in Santa Monica together. Oh, I love that. So I loved the whole process. I was like watching the movie. I, th- I thought it was fun. And I thought Ryan Gosling was great. Margo was great. <laughs> I think it was, it was just fun to, and entertaining for me. I didn't want to see it, but I thought that it was it was really fun on all kinds of levels. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I like the way they handled Barbie character. I like the way they handled Ken. There's a nice message there for people. I enjoyed it. Yeah, of course. I'm Ken enough. <laughs> there you go. You can play that part. <laughs> I'm Ken enough. I'm Ken enough. <laughs> so, Serena, tell us a little bit about your not-for-profit endeavor called High School Media Collective. Yeah, that's actually how we met, and I am so excited about it because I love what you're doing with next generation storytellers too. So we have that we have that in common. I really believe that children are so important. 
the youth of America is so important. And I tell everybody they're our future and they're having such a tough time right now. You know, I'm, I'm a mother and a grandmother and I just love kids. And I look around and I see what's happening in the world. The suicide rate is up with young people. Yeah. It's actually up everywhere. But I've heard the statistic like uh, one out of every three young people thinks about or attempt suicide. Yeah, the teachers are depressed. That we're losing teachers, we're losing, um, uh, you know, administrators. The kids are having a tough time, and so Black Magic called me, and they said that they were really interested in in a program, you know, starting a company. They couldn't do it themselves, and would I start a nonprofit? And I didn't even think about it. I didn't even think. I said yes, of course. And a um, year and a half later. I'm learning a lot about how to run a nonprofit, changing young people's lives. Just one school at a time. What we do is we have we have um, about 50 mentors in all areas of the film business, and we talk with the teachers. We find out what they're strong in, what they're weak in, what they need, and then we'll go in and we'll we'll counsel. We'll do um, you know like at the end of the school year. A lot of the kids were asking about how do I get a job? And mm. uh, some were going on to college, some were looking for work. So it's counseling career pathways kind of things, but it's also media literacy. So any aspect of media literacy we can cover. And it's just, it's wonderful. And it, I just love to see the look in their faces when a stranger comes in the room and I make them all turn their cameras on. I don't want mm-hmm. to be talking to blank screens. I want them to be awake. <laughs> and all we do is we just love them. We just love them. We respect them. Um, we listen to them and we give them whatever guidance we can. And they're just, they're just, their hearts are so big mm-hmm. and they just need that because sometimes they're getting it at home and sometimes they're not. Right. Sometimes they're getting it at school. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're having trouble with bullies. Um, the last school I went into, the first question was, what do you do when you're feeling really down? How do you get out of it? You know? And um, gosh, that's a lot of responsibility to answer that question. Yeah. And I'm not a counselor. So I just said that. I said, I'm not a counselor, but uh, I'll tell you what I do. I play some really positive music. I put music on <laughs> and that helps get me into a different rhythm. It's, it's goes, so yeah. true. Music changes elevates the mood uh, or you know if you want to get inspired you know throw some classical music on or it changes the mood immediately and it i know does. i know for me like i could be in total funk and i'm going gosh i you know i don't know what to do to get myself out of this and then i just turn a, a song on and the next thing you know the energy changes and i forgot the reason why i was sad to begin with yeah it's amazing speaking about teaching love uh, Boys Town, that's one of their mottos and, and teaching love, which they, you know, they have a structured uh, way of, you know, getting these kids back into stable condition to begin with. But they've been working on this. Well, let me just back it up a second. Uh, several years ago, uh, they, they were realizing that affecting teens by teaching or teens and youth by teaching them love when they haven't been getting it they were finding uh that it was actually changing their frontal lobe uh 
They could see it really? on, on MRIs. So wow. that technology has advanced. They own like one or two of the only like very super, super advanced MRIs. And now they, what they used to be able to see like a quarter size. They can see a pinprick and they can, they can, they can actually, they can track that love is changing their, their, their brains, <laughs> which is pretty incredible. Um, and so they're on the precipice of like a Nobel peace prize right now because of that. And who would have known? Well, you know, instead of you know prescribing drugs, now obviously some people have to take certain kinds of drugs and things like that to help them out. But just something as simple as teaching love and knowing that they're loved could change their whole their whole brain and their mind. You know, it's interesting you said that because a few years ago I was thinking about you know I've done almost well my bucket list I've done everything on my bucket list except shoot a cover of National Geographic magazine. Haven't done that yet. I've shot for them, but not the cover. I want the cover eventually, <laughs> if they're still around. But I was thinking about what do I want to do? You know, where do I, I don't, every creative person has aspects of themselves where they say, I'm not good enough. I'm really not very good at this. I know I've been successful, but there's so many people that are so much better than me. So I'm going through this self the self-analysis, and I'm thinking, what do I do really well? What do I love? Of course, I know what I love, but what do I do really well? And the only thing I could come up with is love. And and then I said to myself, well, what can you do with that? And so I think what I've decided since then, and it's one of the reasons why I like doing my podcast so much, and I do have a new one that I'm going to be starting as well, so I'll have two of them. But it's because I can love other people. I can bring other people on. I can talk to them about who they are, take the attention off of me, and really just show them how I can appreciate them and how the world can appreciate them. That just makes me feel really good. And I like bringing companies together, um, you know, helping people do deals, introducing people to other people that inspire them. So... That's kind of my new mission. That's a beautiful mission. (laughs) Love. And kind of this kind of, you said it slightly, but as you know, uh, I've been in, sorry, rather um, being a storyteller, like most of us, you know, who work in movies, what are some of the mental health benefits of escaping reality and creating your own stories? Oh, I've done that since I was a little girl. I've just, ever since I was a little girl, I um, I think we have similar backgrounds in terms of some of the family dynamics. And, and there were times when it was really, really tough for me. And I, my way of coping with it was going into a little fantasy world. I, I loved to write. I can remember one time when I was very young, I left my house I don't know how old I was, uh, just a kid, probably maybe six or seven. And I left the house. I took some paper and a pencil with me, and I climbed up into an apple tree. And I was writing, how well can you write at that age? But I thought I was writing poetry or whatever I was working on. Uh, Come to find out my parents were looking all over for me. They didn't know where I was. And uh, when they finally found me, I got in trouble. But, yeah, I think writing and reading 
um, reading is wonderful. My, my uh, when I was in elementary school and started to read and got into junior high school, a lot of my free time was spent either reading or walking through the woods or into the country with my camera and taking pictures. And then I learned how to print my own pictures so that I, I wanted to be able to paint, but I didn't think I could. So that's why photography was always really fun for me. So I would go into the dark room and spend hours and hours in there creating these double images and playing around with the, the uh, you know, just the way the pictures looked. And while I'm doing that, I've got these stories in my head and you forget about the bad stuff. And you're bringing the light into your world, and you're bringing that love into your world. It's it's wonderful. It's a great world to live in, and that makes it easier to cope with the other stuff. So you know you're stronger when you go back in to the hard stuff. Yeah, I I agree a hundred percent. Does that answer your Does that answer your question? It, it does. It does. Now. I'm sure there's a there's a long list, but who are some of the most significant teachers that you have had as a young filmmaker or mentor and what did they teach you? Oh, you know, it's funny. I I was talking with some friends yesterday and I don't know why, but this came up and I feel incredibly lucky to have worked with some amazing people. Uh, I don't know if you know who John Milius is, the writer. He uh, he wrote Apocalypse Now, and yeah. he he he's an amazing writer. He became a really dear friend of mine. We had offices um, in the old Synergy Building. We were down the hall from each other, and every script he was working on, he would come over to my office, and we would just sit and talk. And he would let me read his scripts. I learned a lot about screenwriting from him, and um, he used to joke around about me being his muse. I haven't seen him in years. He went through some difficult times. Mm. And I do think about him once in a while and wonder how he's doing. Uh, the other lesson was from Sidney Pollock. Um, the second year of Sundance, we were premiering Electric Horseman. Wow. And went to the back of the theater, and I'm hanging out with Sidney, and I said, you know, at the end of the movie, I said, you know, you didn't really show a lot. Um, and he said something to me that I... That I still to this day remember, he said, sometimes what you don't show is more impactful than what you do because people's imagination is stronger than you think and let them think. So um, I was giving script notes to somebody yesterday and one of the things I told him was, let me as a director or as, as if I were a studio executive reading this, let me have my own imagination with the script. Don't tell me too much. Let me imagine it. So let me think the other person, oh, Billy Friedkin. I'm so sad he's gone. Mm. Um, he told me something else about directing because uh, I worked with him on a couple of projects. He told me that one of the reasons The Exorcist was so effective was the attention to detail. And he, he just he just set one scene for me. He says, OK, so think that you're in a bar and you're setting up the scene in the bar. Are you going to do your master shot? You're going to cut to, you're going to do some cutaways. You're going to cut to the to the close-ups. He said, but what else is in that room that's going to bring the audience into the room? He said, it's the cigarette smoking in the ashtray. It's the feet on the footrests. Mm -hmm. It's the, you know, set the scene. Let the people feel the the room that they're in. 
And that really has helped me over the years because sometimes if you're on a set and you're, and you want some coverage and you say, go grab that or I want to see their hands or I want to see, you know, there's a wrinkle in his collar of his shirt. I want to see that because that has something to do with his character. And they look at me like I'm crazy, but then later <laughs> on the editor loves it. Yeah. Right? Of course. So, so it's that. So I learned from John. I learned from Sydney. I learned from Billy Friedkin. Um, a lot of people over the years have been really fortunate. Just so lucky. Yeah. Incredible. And it is about detail. You, 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 people don't realize it. They don't, they don't realize it when they're watching it, because especially if you're not in the industry, right? They're just there to be entertained. And, you know, maybe they subliminally don't realize, you know, why they're enjoying it. Now, they're looking at the actor's performances. They're looking at the visuals overall. But it is about the details. I mean, seeing a cigarette burn right away, my senses smell. Smell it. You smell the cigarette. Mm -hmm. You know what that's mm -hmm. like. You see the feet up on a stool and you go, yeah, I, I do that. You know, it's, and if they're shaking, yeah. right? You know the person's nervous. Yeah. You can tell by the way the feet sit on the on the stool what they're thinking. You know, I was uh, directing a scene on a narrative film, and the two actors, the the two, it was a mother and a and a daughter, and it was a scene. Um, the mother's battling alcoholism, and um, they were having a little bit of trouble getting into it. So I just. And I don't, I'm not the world's greatest director. I try, but I, and I would love some tips from you as a longtime actor about I, how I, I just tell him, I just tell him, do better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I walked up to her, to the mother, and I said, you know, um, there's a third person in this room that you can't see. She said, who? I said, it's your dead husband. It's your husband who passed away. And he's here with you. And he wants you to overcome this. That's all I said. And I walked away and they did the scene and it was like oh, everybody was yeah. crying. Yeah. yeah. It's it's something as simple as that. And I'm, I'm going to say right now, if you were giving that note, if you were giving that note, that makes you a pretty incredible director. You think? Yeah. <laughs> Try. Yeah. Digging deep. You have to, to question everything. The backstory has to exist. And that's what I always try to teach other actors. It's like, you have to dig deeper it's not just about what's on the page. It's about the whole journey that started before you were here as this character and everything that led up to it. There's a lot of responsibility. Don't you think there's a lot of responsibility on both sides, right? I love actors because you have to be so trusting. Hmm. You know, you put everything you have, you open your heart, your mind, your talent to somebody that's, that's sort of guiding the whole crew around you. I, I really ad admire that. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely scary. Uh, there's not a moment when, I mean, it, it always starts with me for the, the very first shot that I'm going to be doing on a film, whether, whatever it's at the end of the movie, the middle of the movie, wherever we start, it takes me about two takes, three takes to fully trust everybody and then completely open up because I'm, I'm with inside my head and my heart's beating fast and I, I'm sweating because I'm trying to you know, not trying to prove yourself, but, you know, you have a lot of eyes going, now, what does this person got? You know, do your thing. We're going to, we're just going to watch you go for it. So it's cry. Yeah. It's intimidating. But once okay. I get past those first three, the next thing I know, I'm like, you know, every day after that's easy, but it takes a little, uh, it takes a lot of trust. It does. But you know, um, when you're on a set, 
for a long time and you were on those sets for years, right? But for for me, it was like three, four months at a time. Sometimes you're on these projects for for years in a different way, but you get attached to people. And I know when I used to do, I used to be in a lot of community theater and at the end of the play, at the end of the run, it's like, oh my God, I'm moving away from my family. You know, you, you get yeah. attached to people. Yeah. Um, Speaking you of... You reminded me of something. Yeah, what's that? You know, you had asked me a question. There's so many stories. I'm talking too much. Um, you you asked me about challenges, and uh, I'm remembering something that happened a few years ago. I was, I was lead shooter. I was lead shooter on a show, a reality show, and, and on this particular... Um, this particular episode, it was volunteer challenges, right? So we did, we were doing high desert, running through the desert with cactus all around us. But I show up on the set, and back then I'm shooting mini DV, Canon XL1 at the time. And, you know, the beta guys weren't going to be doing the running up, up the mountains because they had this big heavy equipment. And I was shooting some beta too, but so the, the one... The one guy, one of these typical, I don't know how to describe them. You know, the tough guys that are on the set that have been around for a while that mm-hmm. are really good at what they do. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, you are craft service girl? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I went, no. I went, no, I'm shooting. He goes, hmm. shooting? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm shooting. And so we went through the day. And I mean, at the end of the day, we're all picking cactus out of our legs and we're exhausted. And, and the crew can barely get back on the van to go back to the hotel. He pulled me aside. He said, you're a effing rock star. He said, <laughs> I'd work with you any time. Yeah. I said, well, I try. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You know, you, you were saying something about theater, and, and it, it reminds me of a saying that you, you in theater, you never learn anything from a hit. I'm sure it doesn't happen very often, but what are some of the lessons that you've learned uh, when something doesn't quite turn out as well as you thought it would? <laughs> well, I can tell you one thing. Don't be late on getting to the set when you're in a play. <laughs> I remember senior year in high school, I was, I was playing, it was a small role. I was playing Meep in the Diary of Anne Frank. And we were we were rehearsing, and I hate being late. I mean, I really have a almost a phobia about it, especially if you're in production. You just can't be late. But I was cutting it really close, and there was a folding chair in front of the stage, and I went because I wanted to get right onto the stage and so didn't want to run backstage. So I jumped on the chair, but the folding chair collapsed on me and smashed my leg at the calf. I still have a dent in my leg from that. Oh. And I ended up having to go to the hospital. Um, luckily, it didn't break, and then I was back on the set. But, yeah, don't be late. Um, failure. Yeah, you have, to, you have to kind of get used to the ups and downs. And I think you learn. Every time you fail, you learn something, you learn something new from it. You know, on my side, it's been a lot of the, of the business things, you know, the ups and downs in the business. Being an independent contractor since literally since 1989 i've been running my own business and working in the business and going from set to set or client to client some things work something sometimes they don't i walked off of one set on a movie i was directing um which i've never done before and i haven't done since but i i was having issues and i had you know i said okay it's happened twice 
if it happens a third time, I'm literally going to leave and I'll be gone. And they, a third time happened. And I just, I took my assistant and I said, we're out of here. And I left. And looking back on it, there probably would have been a more professional way to handle that. And um, so that was a big lesson for me. That was a lesson in patience. It was a lesson in, you know, maybe I should have just pulled everybody aside and had another talk with them rather than just walk off. Um, But on the other hand, you had to do what um, you had to do. Well, they they uh, they didn't have the proper insurance and were doing a lot of stunts. Yeah. And uh, they were not insured. And I said, I'm directing this. And if somebody gets hurt, I could get sued, you know, and um, and they didn't rectify it. And we were getting ready. We were rehearsing some really difficult. It was cheerleading with, you know, three levels up. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it happened that there was an accident after I left. There was an accident and the lead actress fell off the top of the pyramid. Oh, my gosh. And broke her jaw and knocked some teeth out. Wow. Yeah, you can't take chances like that. I I was doing a film in New Mexico, and it was the very first day of the shoot. And, you know, I love this director. She's a wonderful woman. Uh, But, you know, she decided that she wanted to do this over the shoulder while I was driving. Uh, And it was on a sort of an off, it wasn't interstate, but like a freeway, you know, two lane. But there was a lot of traffic coming. And we had a a car that was pacing behind us to make sure. But... um, we had to keep turning around, doing it over and over again. And behind us in the car, the spotting car, the spot car, whatever you want to call it, they were, you know, they were, uh, they went to turn around and they turned right into traffic. And the wardrobe girl was in there. The makeup girl was in there. Um, I think the first AD was in there. Uh, they completely got T-boned, knocked teeth out, broken collarbones, broken oh, no. wrist. And this is the very first day of the shoot. And I'm, I'm just going, and I had told him, I said, it's, it's not necessary to do this. We could, I mean, we, we could be parked and you could set it up in a studio and we can make it look like we're actually driving. Um, and, and anyway, so that ended up getting cut, but you know, we had to take a break from the day. But I, at that point I'm like, should I leave this set? Is it going to be safe for everybody? But we stuck it out and, and the film turned out okay. You know, it's, it's amazing what you'll do to get the shot. I, I remember I was working on, on um, the same series, it was the volunteer challenges, and we were in the mountains this time. We were high up in the mountains, and I'm to do these shoots. I would have to bring all of my equipment with me and have it with me all day, including my food, my extra batteries, any anything that I needed, gaffer's tape, anything that I needed had to be with me during the day. But there was one. I can't believe I did this going from one ridge to the other where I literally was on a very narrow ridge with barely enough room for me to get from one to the other. And I wasn't tethered. I had to untether from one and navigate to the other one to get tethered again. And I did it because the show must go on. But I, uh, you know, I'm thinking that that wasn't really good safety. And had I fallen you wouldn't be talking to me today. Right. You know, we were saying something a little earlier about, you know, how, how you know, tough the business can be and how brutal the business can be. 
for all the young people striving to get into the movie business, do you think today's kids have what it takes? Do they think they have the skin to withstand the difficult path of having a successful career in this business? You know what? I think they do, but I think they need mentors. I don't think enough kids have mentors these days. You know, we there, there's a positive aspect to the democratization of equipment, and then there's the negative aspect to it. The positive aspect to it is you can give anybody a camera. They're not, they can learn how to shoot and how, um, you know, they work in these school environments and they make these films and they give themselves a title of director and producer or cinematographer or DP or whatever they're going to call themselves. And then they get into the real world and they find out that it's a little bit more difficult than that. So I think, um, and that's one of the things that you're doing with next generation storytellers that I find so appealing is that you're giving these kids the opportunity the ones that really want to do it. And there are, there are a lot of them out there and they're smart. They are smart. They are technically savvy. They have great imagination. They really want to work hard once they're given the opportunity to do that and a field to run in, but you're taking it to the next level because what you're doing, instead of having them flail about and make movies uh, on their own, they're working with the keys you know, the director, like the cinematographer, you're bringing the keys in from the different departments so that they can actually have some mentors while they're making these films. I love that. I think that's that's amazing. It, it absolutely is amazing. Um, you know, they really do have... Uh, I've noticed, well, obviously, technologically speaking, these kids are a lot more advanced than what I was at their age. They've got a lot more of the world at their fingertips. But, you know, even like my son, he's such a movie buff. And I know that he's going to find some sort of path in the industry because he really loves that. Math, not so much. English, a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> but, but you know, being an artist is definitely something that's in his, 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 his world and in his realm. And I do believe that students with the right mentorship can find that passion and have a successful career. You know what would help him with his math? You're going to laugh at me. <laughs> Get him a fountain pen and teach him calligraphy. They don't teach even teach, cur- they don't even teach cursive. In, yeah, cursive in schools anymore. No, it's crazy because it's directly connected to that part of the brain that oversees your ability in math. And, and I, I think it, it, it indulges the creative part, but it also gets that part of the brain working. And we're not teaching that anymore. No. Why no, not? not? I have no idea. It's, it's incredible. I mean, I, I, mean I, I go right away, how are they going to write a check? Yeah. Going to print out a check? I mean, I mean, not that we use checks so much anymore, but, but you, know, you write it in cursive. That's how you were taught. And, yeah. And so I, I, it's just beyond me. Now, you've shot over 100 projects so well, far I've, in your career, right? Actually, or been I've, involved. Worked on, I've worked on, in, in some capacity, actually, it's more than 150, and it's a combination of film and television. A lot of it was marketing um, those eight years at the studio. We, did, we made a lot of movies. But I, what I managed to do, and I kind of wrote this into my script for my employment at the studio, was... I always managed to be involved in the creative side as well. So uh, I would get the weekend reads every weekend, and I loved that. And then we would have our, our meetings about it. But the music videos and the trailers and the TV spots and the radio spots. So all of that kept giving me the creative 
um, you know, my creative genes were really happy in addition to worrying about the budgets and the bottom line and distribution and, and the scheduling and all of that. Cause, um, it was a $200 million a year budget in my, in my division and offices all over the world. So you can get caught up in the business side of it and, and not have the, the happiness of doing the creative stuff. So we managed to really get involved in everything. And I love that. And I forgot what your question was. Well, I never, I, just, I never finished it, but I thought that was a really great answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask what are, what are some of the projects that you're most proud of? Um, well, in terms of the marketing, I think it was our work on, and I say our, because anybody that says that they did it by themselves is lying. Mm-hmm. No matter what you do in this business, it takes it really takes a team most of the time. Um, I think the uh, I loved that we broke the mold with Rocky Four and how we distributed it and when we distributed it. Um, I loved pulling Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures off the the shelf of one of my clients. Nobody wanted to buy it. <laughs> it was just sitting there, and I I took it home. Played it for my girls. We laughed a lot. I went back and I said, give me $3 million and I'm going to have everybody saying, excellent. And <laughs> It's true. And and uh, that was really fun. That was really fun. Um, Rain Man was really, that was involved with that one right from the very, very first draft of the script wow. on the way, all the way to the release in terms of the marketing. And um, what a picture that was, that was, it was really wonderful to work on. I remember <laughs> everybody thought that the poster was so genius of you know, the two of them walking through the, the, the road with the trees. And that what nobody really knew is that that was literally the only picture that I could pull off of the coverage. <laughs> I literally <laughs> remember pulling the slide back in those days. We worked with slides, pulling the slide out of the, plastic sleeve and going okay this is it because that was the only one i could get the two of them to approve (laughs) and that became the poster um i loved working on the james bond movies wow um i started out with octopussy and a view to a kill and living daylights and i then there were four of them i can't remember but um those were fun those were fun Amazing. I remember the um, the music video Duran Duran on the Eiffel Tower. I don't. You yeah, sure, noticed. of course. Okay, they sent me um, that was produced out of London, and we were kind of overseeing it, right? So they sent me the final cut a little bit late, and I had to deliver it to MTV. But it was too long because we had restrictions. If it was over two and a half minutes long at the time, then we would have to pay all kinds of residuals, and the studio didn't want to do that, and they knew that. But it was over three minutes long, I literally had to go over to Capitol Records. I spent the night on the couch while the editor and I tried to work out how to cut this music video down so that we could still deliver it to MTV. And of course, you understand this, the picture and the sound were married. Yeah. I didn't have have separate tracks. So (laughs) I had to, they were furious. Just the idea that I was going to have to do that. I said, look, I'm sorry. We yeah. we have to. I can't. So we delivered it. We we shipped it, flew it basically to New York to MTV, the cut down version. And uh, and then when they saw it, they really liked it. And so when they came into San Francisco to do the, do the premiere, we were kind of all hanging out, having fun. But yeah, yeah, that was fun. 
So many memories, so many amazing memories. Yeah. I mean, what an incredible ride. Uh, and I didn't even know that. I'm learning more every time I'm talking to you. So, and, and now I'm not worthy. I'm completely not no, worthy to be in your presence. Not true. Not true at all. <laughs> well, it's it's been incredible talking to you. I, I want to ask you, and I ask everybody this in my podcast, if you could take a ride in the Jacob Young time machine, what would you tell young Serena? What advice would you give? Oh, I would, I would probably tell her to be a little bit more patient with people that tell you no (laughs) and and don't walk off of movie sets when you're directing. (laughs) I've only done it once. I'll never do it again. Um, Yeah. And not be judgmental. Like I think it took me a long time to just kind of relax and allow other people to be who they are and love them for who they are. And, uh, you know, some people you can love from further away than others, but just, just be comfortable uh, with everyone and, and not so judgmental and, um, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Good advice. And then the last uh, question I have is, uh, Boys Town's motto, uh, which is he ain't heavy. He's my brother, which the story goes back to the very beginning when father Flanagan founded Boys Town and one of the boys, they couldn't get medical equipment for. So the boys would take turns carrying him from classes to football fields and father said, hey, you know, isn't he heavy? He goes, he's not heavy, father. He's my brother. And, um, and so, meaning, who's carried you in your life, Serena? Yeah, that, that, that is such a powerful message. Ooh. Um, I think mostly my family. Um, I had problems in my family, but I think about my grandfather, my Sicilian grandfather, and I went to stay with him for a month after my grandmother died. I was in high school and I learned about him and he was always so encouraging. And he he loved that I liked to sing. My grandparents on both sides, the Belgian side and the Sicilian side, the, the mentors that I had over the years, uh, you know, as a woman, it was really hard to break into the business. And I and when people and I get this from kids, they say, did you have a hard time being a woman? And aren't you angry about the way they treat women? And I say, well, you got to remember one thing. For every very successful woman of my era, there were men who trusted her and who gave her the ability to do what she's doing. So for all those men along the way and the other women executives who gave me a shot, I love them for that, you know? Yeah. I do. I love them for that. Well, I'm glad they did. Thank you. I'm too. (laughs) (laughs) Serena, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. We're all kind of on a bit of a hiatus at the moment until these strikes get settled. Hopefully we'll all be moving past this fairly quickly for everyone, and and I hope it's soon. I'm sure you're anxious to get behind the camera again and uh, looking forward to everything that you'll be creating when we all get back to that world and your world. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. And I'm so glad to meet you and Trent. We feel it's the a same. Great friendship just getting started. Thank you for what you do too, bringing people into this podcast that you have and letting them open up to other people. I think what you're sharing with the world is really important. And you've reintroduced me to Boys Town, so I thank yeah. you for that. Well, we think yeah, Boys Town thanks you and of course I do and thank you for the kind words. We'll be talking to you soon. 
That's about all the time that we have for this week, but the Boys Town toll-free national hotline is 1-800-448-3000. 1-800-448-3000 is a 24-7 crisis resource and referral number for kids and their parents. They're always there to help anyone having suicidal thoughts, risking any type of self-harm, parenting problems, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. If you're having any kind of uh, anger issues, anything, or you just need somebody to talk to, they're there for you 24-7. The Boys Town National Hotline, 1-800-448-3000. You don't feel like talking? You can text VOICE to 20121. Text VOICE to 20121. Someone will get back to you immediately. Boys Town, saving children, healing families. Till next time, love each other and love yourself.